Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Oh, meet me in the towering halls of the mind. Take my hand and guide me toward the aquamarine past. Sit me down and hush the world outside as the ghosts float past the moon underwater. to be here. It's good to be here under beam, may I say. Under beam and what might you call it? Thatch and wattle, perhaps. Who knows? Clay plaster and ancient sort of quite intricate paintings of the, of the walls. Certain amounts of gilded items this evening. Uh, quite a lot of gold gilt work on the walls this evening. There are some lovely uh, lovely horse brasses. Yeah, I have the feeling that the moon underwater is in a slightly medieval mood. It's a bit like being in one of those illuminated manuscripts. Oh yes, yeah, I love those. And also, as with those manuscripts, there isn't any perspective. No. So, um, although you're quite far away from me, you actually look very close. Yes. Uh, but but a bit smaller. And I'm also the same size as the house and the sun. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's lovely. It's a lovely effect. And like any illuminated manuscript, the moon underwater this evening is being handled by those little white gloves that museum curators have. So Robin and I have both got on our little white gloves because we don't want to get any of our sort of oils on the moon underwater, lest they cause it to tarnish, or dare I say, cause any foxing. Yes, we want to be careful of the vellum. There's lots of vellum about tonight. (laughs) And uh, the fly sheets. uh, We're just about expecting Nina Ramirez to turn up to kind of take us through some of the artefacts. Who's that? She's the medieval historian who um, is on TV and went to St. Anne's College. Oh, well, then she is a blessed brethren. Yeah, she she let me copy her uh, medieval translations in first year. Oh, that's quite good. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, Robin, how does the moon underwater find you? Are you feeling in a medieval mood at all? Mm, No, I mean... I'm getting close to my middle ages. (laughs) Oh, I don't mind a bit of that. I don't mind a bit of yes. that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm fine. Yes. Um, uh, had a nice couple of pubbings in sort of in and around Farringdon last night. Oh, tell me more. Went to the Fox and Anchor, which is a lovely pub, and uh, the Sutton Arms, which is very nice. It was, it, was quite, it was an interesting point, though, because we went kind of just after work, and they were very quiet. I know it was a Monday night, but they were very quiet. And I think because lots of people are working from home, and I guess things are still gradually getting back to normal, that kind of trade of the classic London trade of people spilling outside with pint glasses isn't really there anymore, is it? Yeah, I think it's going to be a real problem for all city centre pubs, is that sort of lack of the half-past-five 
quick two pints before going home. Yeah, I mean, in in a way, it's a blessed relief. But on the other hand, you know, the pubs do need to make money. (laughs) Well, it's that very difficult balance that I think you and I notice where we like quieter pubs, but we also don't want pubs to close down. Yes. You can't really solve that problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think maybe pubs should have like... You know how during the pandemic... uh, supermarkets had sort of quiet shopping moments oh yeah i wonder if there's a way for pubs to do that (laughs) sort of limiting the capacity but no why on earth would they do that it doesn't make sense it's a bad idea what about this if you're the only person in a pub you have to pay what a full pub would pay for for pints therefore (laughs) keeping it afloat so a pint if you're the only person there the pint might cost you know a thousand pounds Mm, yeah, but I mean that then makes pubs just the the sole playthings of the rich. Well, it depends. Get your mates together. You might get it down to two pounds. I wonder if the best system is that the first person in the pub then has to okay everyone that comes in the pub thereafter. <laughs> it sounds a little on the fascistic side. <laughs> well, no, you're you're sort of the bouncer, so you can be like, "Oh no, I don't like the look of you," and then when you leave. The next, per- the person who is second in, then sort of takes over. Ah, oh, that's quite good. You pass on the bounce, the bouncer baton. Yeah, or like a pubs become like pool tables, and you have to put your fifty p on the windowsill outside to wait till it's free, and then you get to come in. What if you're a punter who the first bouncer didn't like, but the second bouncer did like? You just have to hang around. You sort of do a holding pattern outside. <laughs> Yeah, or there's a chalkboard where you sort of put the reserves on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not a bad idea. I can't see any problems with that. No, idea. I can't really no. see any problems with that whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Robin, I I sighed for the missed mail today. I hope you didn't mind. No, no, sure. Give us your quicks. Give us a sigh. Oh, oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was quite nice, wasn't it? We've had a a, a, a mail from Lee that arrived in the mist, and Lee says, "Hey, John and Robin." Thanks for the pub of the mind, always keeping me sated. I walk in the hills above Folkestone a lot, and there's a pub called the Cat and Custard Pot, mm. nestled perfectly in said hills. Few cars pass and fewer houses surround. Its position is ideal after a long walk for an early evening sun-sinking pint. A bench outside on a little grassy verge, currently verdant trees and the endless blue-green. There seems nowhere better for a sit, a pint and a read. Currently, I'm reading Travels with Charlie by Steinbeck. I know it's not a hidden nook in a warmly lit drinkery, and if you didn't much care for the outdoors, it may hold nothing for you, but if you're ever in south-east Kent, then drop by for a sup. Drive there by all means, but I find it best enjoyed after or during a walk with some cans. The inside is nice too. Also, have either of you tried Vino Verdi? The white variety seems to be the easiest to source, and it's effing drinkable. Pints be with you, Lee. Brilliant. Thanks, Lee, for that little picture of a country pub. Yeah. Very strange name, isn't it? Yes. It, well, it sort of ticks a couple of boxes, that missed mail, because it's a nice, strange pub name. And if you do have any strange pub names, uh, send them in to john at moonunderpod.com. I've never really accessed many pubs on country walks. And I think for me, there's a little bit of stress in that. So say you're walking eight miles to a pub and you want to have your mates want to have a couple of drinks. Then what happens with the rest of the, I don't want to carry on walking because I'm in the pub now. I'm in sort of, I'm on pub time. Yes. I, I don't want to then have to walk eight miles when I'm sort of two pint drunk. You need a designated driver in your walking troop, really, to take you back to base. Yeah. What I want to do is walk to a pub that I then stay in. I don't want to interrupt a walk with a pub to then have a pub interrupt a walk. All the Lots of the National Trust walks are very good at kind of being, they, they're circular. You know, you get back to where you started from. So I think, not National Trust, I mean, who does walks? Uh, Ordnance Survey? <laughs> yeah, people like that. Ramblers? Yeah, so that if, if you can kind of start near a pub, then there's an effing good chance you'll end near that pub. If I was st- the idea of going to a pub and then walking away from it. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, just just give up. Just just give up. Give up. <laughs> I think the the only way I'd be able to do it. Okay, hear me out. So, midday, Pizza Express. God, he's obsessed with Pizza Express. <laughs> Somewhere in in the countryside, I imagine. <laughs> then, like a a four hour walk. 
I'm just imagining a, a Pizza Express just coming it hoving into view beyond a meadow. Yeah, somewhere in the Pennines. Yeah. There'd just be a Pizza Express next to a sort of babbling brook and sort of yeah. field of sheep. I mean, it, it would do a good trade. Well, I'd like to use the walk to digest the food to then get the food sat at that perfect level where it's no longer in your stomach, but it's kind of there providing a bit of ballast for the pints. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, I've got to take a few days off uh, the old pints. Had a few few heavy sessions, so it's always wise to have a bit of a reset. Mm. A bit of a night on the Guinness Clear, a.k.a. water because uh, I can't keep passing off this redness on my nose as sunburn anymore, <laughs> oh, uh, given that it's one of the wettest Augusts on record. It really is. Yeah, it really is. Someone else who might want to have a little breather from the booze is uh, Paul, who wrote in, The pubs revealeth them send to the mind landlords. I've had a great day out in Leicester. Leicester is a bit of an asshole for good pubs and good pub stories, but there's a couple that make it enjoyable. The Salmon and the King's Head are wondrous in every way. The test was on in all the establishments. Lovely stuff. I'm a little bit inebriated, despite very much hashtag keeping it session. Ten pints down. Ten is in bold. People, 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 as opposed to lads, lads, lads. Love all you pints folk of the realm. Paul. I love the way he's written from the midst of a sesh. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of affected his prose his prose style. It's, it's great. But I don't agree that Leicester's an asshole for pubs. No, I like Leicester. It's good. I think that the Black Horse is really nice. The Rutland and Derby Arms is really nice. There's also a really nice pub I went to in Leicester. Oh, I think it might be the King's Head. Is it, Leicester's a really good pub town. I think the problem is that... It's one of those towns that's got quite a unpubby main strip. Yeah, there's a lovely pub on the by actually on the train station as well, isn't there? Yeah, I think I think Leicester could be one of the great crawls. I just think that the main sort of two high streets in the pedestrianised area. It's one of those cities that sort of had its centre ruined by a pedestrianised shopping sort of. This is just loads of new looks and... Subways. Yeah, it's got that sort of vibe. But you go into those side streets and Leicester's actually a bit of a bit of an old ye olde gem. A trove. We shall, we shall have to go. We shall have to trove. We should, we should trove. We should trove to Leicester maybe one day. <laughs> anyway, folks, do uh, send us any mails from the midst of a lash or the midst of a crawl. Uh, keep your emails coming to john at moonunderpod.com and also remember to check out our Patreon offerings as the live gigs are in full swing at time of recording and um, the first one was an absolute belter so if you want advance info about those you can go to patreon.com forward slash moonunderpod but now I think it's time to uh, I need to I need to get some kind of perspective back into the pub Robin because we can't welcome in our guest with uh, in 2D, 2D, absolutely not. Uh, they won't know where to reach or how far things are. So I'm going to try and do my best to three-dimensionify the atmosphere in here a little bit. Well, Robin, what an atmosphere here at the Moon Underwater. How, how would you, how would you describe it? Ah, uh, turgid. Would you really say so? <laughs> I was going to say poignancy. Oh, poignancy, poignancy. An atmosphere yeah. of poignancy, but that's a positive emotion in the moon underwater because all emotions are sort of seen through their positive prism in the moon underwater. But that said, Robin, did you know one thing that's quite exceptional about the moon underwater that we haven't discussed before is that every guest brings their own weather with them? Oh, yes. Well, you know, as Crowded House famously sang... You know, um, everywhere you go, you always take the weather with you. Yeah, I, I wanted to name another crowded house song. <laughs> Whenever I fall, world where you live, fall at your feet. Uh, it's only natural. It's only natural that guests should bring the weather with them, as crowded house said. Yes, and it's nice because some people come in with sort of the silence of sunlight, the silence of overcast, the whisper of wind. But let's let's see what uh, weather this week's guest brings with them as they ride the ripples from the earthly pub. 
into the moon underwater. And I think that guest is approaching now. I see her at the window and the latch moves and the door creaks to welcome in Jane Garvey. Hello, Jane. Hello, John. Hello, Robin. Welcome. Welcome. How average it is to be here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Welcome to the moon underwater. And it's a delight to welcome, I'm going to say it, Jane, a national voice treasure. An audio national treasure. A national treasure. Yes, I don't I don't like it being qualified as audio national treasure. Thank you very much. Oh, okay. Yeah, definitely a national treasure, both audio, visual, all the senses, taste. <laughs> you are you are a but in all seriousness, you are a voice mm. that has played such a huge part in so many people's lives for, for many years now. And you're also such a force in the podcast world as well. Has that been like a real gift to you as a broadcaster? My voice? No, the form of the podcast. Oh, God, it, it, the podcast is brilliant for me because I was always a bit of, I, I struggled a bit with with structure of any kind. I, I struggle with structured clothing, with plans, with keeping to timetables, all of that stuff. So the idea that you can just roam across the audio universe, that's good. That's why I, I enjoy podcasting. And I think I'm very lucky to have lived in an age where it exists. I think without it, well, without radio, I don't know where I'd be either, to be honest. So yeah, I'll just, um, yeah. what am I saying? Um, so yeah, I think podcast does suit me because I never liked scripts, was no good at writing them, really crap at reading them. So this is much better, much better. Are you better kind of improvising everything or coming up with stuff on the spot? Do you, pref- do you have any kind of guidelines when you're talking? Not when I'm talking on, fortunately, the moderately <laughs> successful podcast I do with, with Fee Glover. No, we, we, we've always made a habit of never discussing it before we do it. Ever, 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 ever. You might have noticed John and I are the same. <laughs> no, no, I, I felt, I, I mean, I, that was, I was actually in awe of the, clearly you'd been rehearsing for many, many hours before <laughs> I joined you tonight. Um, I thought it was exceptional and uh, extremely well-structured, Thank if you. I might say so. Yeah. <laughs> It always amazed me when I first started out in radio to hear that some presenters get their producers to literally script the entire show. So the producer will be sort of sat working late at night writing all their links and then the sort of presenter will turn up a couple of minutes before and just grab these sheets of paper. And I just thought that must be such a quite an odd experience. I mean, obviously, some shows have to have scripts. You can't improvise the whole thing. No, I mean, I always think as long as you know who you're talking to, vaguely and and what you're supposed to be talking to them about that's a really good start isn't it but um I have picked up scripts on the floor of studios at Broadcasting House and you're right every single syllable of these shows is written down so to the extent where it will have well (laughs) or so comma and you just I just it's soul destroying it's absolutely soul destroying and I just don't want to listen to it I do have no interest in those programs taking part in them or ever listening to them. So there we are. It's another bit of my career I've now totally written off. Anyway, who cares? It's very comfortable up my cul-de-sac. It's fine. You were also the first ever voice on Five Live. When my voice was first on Five Live, we got lots of texts from angry men in their 60s calling us tossers. Um, yeah, and from me, actually, as well. I, I also wrote in. <laughs> <laughs> I, what, was, what was it like when the station was just beginning? What was the sort of... Was it a very dynamic workspace? And if so, what happened to that dynamism? Yes, what the hell happened to that? Well, I, I'm looking... I'm in my... what laugh, Laughingly, um, is I suppose, laughably, is my office at home. And on the wall, I've got the picture. I don't know if you can see it. I'm just going to turn... Can you see what... I've got the photograph of the opening moment of Five Live. Can you see that? Yes. Mm. Yeah, there you go. That's little me. I was just 29, tiny. I was a child. And that was the only thing I got from the BBC as a result of that thing. They gave me a photograph uh, in a frame of the opening moment of Five Live, which is still one of my treasured possessions, actually, in in all seriousness. What happened to that dynamic? Well, it wasn't so much dynamic as, but it was was brilliant. It was a really brilliant place to be with lots of people coming. In my case, I was one of those people coming to London for the first time, really, to work. Um, didn't really know anybody, had never lived in London before. And that wasn't uncommon. There were just loads of us who'd come from all over Britain to set up Five Live. And we were all sort of around the same age, late, late 20s, early 30s. And we just had, we did have a fantastic laugh. 
I've discovered some photographs actually of clearing up my cellar the other day. I mean, some real boozy days of weeks. Brilliant, all of it. You mentioned how, how important it is for a presenter to know what they're meant to be talking about. And you have you have expertly steered us onto the topic in hand. Could you tell me and Robin about the BBC bar? Um, in the club? Well, I don't know, you see. I've just heard tell that there's some mystery pub within the BBC that is maybe not in use anymore. Perhaps it's sort of like... Mrs. Havisham's house, Miss Havisham's house. There definitely is one in BBC Bristol because I've I've been there when I was just playing in a band. Um, we did an interview for BBC Bristol and they they sort of let us in the bar for what they thought was a drink. And the the woman who was showing us around came back four hours later and we were still there and she looked a bit <laughs> shocked because it was very cheap. Yes, <laughs> I think subsidised is the word you're looking for. I think. Yeah, um, exactly. I thought yeah. it was all very innocent natural history in over in Bristol. Is it? Is it not like that? It's a little wackier than I'd imagine. Well, I, I mean, natural history, news programmes, quite a lot of radio gets done there. Quite a lot of drinking gets done as well. Yeah. <laughs> but was there one in London? Well, there is the BBC Club, which is in the basement next door to Radio 2. And I've, I've got to be honest, I've had some pretty average nights in, in, in that establishment. And then there is a bar, or there was a bar over at Television Centre as well. Now, I think things were a little racier over there. And I think you were guaranteed, particularly a Friday night would be rather good over in the te- Television Centre bar. But I think on the whole, it was perhaps a place where your celebrity presenters didn't necessarily darken the doors of these BBC establishments all that frequently. Ah. It was it was a place where the guy who was... No, I'm not even going to say it. No. I, mean, it was, okay. I think a lot of technical support staff enjoyed themselves in, in BBC bars. But um, the pub that everyone drank in when I started at Broadcasting House was The Stag. And then there's other broadcasting house pubs. There's the Yorkshire Grey. Mm, yeah. Um, the Cardinals. Is it called the Cardinals Hat or the Hat and Stick? Or so, I don't know. Some, but these were all, I mean, back in the day, and it is, it is, it's not that long ago, people did just piss off to the pub at, you know, 11 o'clock. And those, those days emphatically have gone, I think. Yes, they absolutely have. Yeah, they, they have, haven't they? But I mean, I was probably... It sounds incredible. I was probably a bit too young to go to the pub. And also I was a, I was a radio presenter. So, you know, you had to factor in the possibility of the next day, working the next day and actually being relatively sober. I am sorry to say that on at least one occasion I was sick in the BBC car park and, and, um, <laughs> and, and did, did have to go home. But I'm talking, this is a long, long time. This is when I was in my 20s. This is not... You know, before I did Woman's Hour three years ago. No, oh, God forbid. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> Front page of the mail tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> BBC girl in drink shame. Yeah. That's, that's what it would be. Did you move to London to do radio from, was that from Merseyside? No, it was from um, the dizzy heights of the breakfast show on BBC Hereford and Worcester. Ooh. I tried to get a job on Radio Merseyside, but I didn't get it because I wasn't Scouse enough. Really? Which was annoying because I was Scouse, and I am Scouse, but anyway, not Scouse enough. So I did the breakfast show at Hereford and Worcester, which was obviously a world away from, you know, I lived in Islington when I first came to London, very trendy part of London, sort of N1. Totally by accident, because I just rented a flat. I don't know where bloody Islington was. I've got no idea. And I certainly didn't know it was trendy. I mean, there were all these restaurants. You could go to a different nationality of eatery every night, probably for about a year, within about a three-minute walk from my flat. Whereas in Worcester, we had the Balti House, which was brilliant, and Pizza Express, if you wanted to have an Italian night. <laughs> Those were the options. It's also John's options for eating out as well, basically. <laughs> I would be quite happy with uh, the Balti House and Pizza Express, actually. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd, I'd still be there, honestly, if I hadn't been steered to to go towards Five Live when it started. Oh, so when we're talking about Jane Garvey's Dream Pub, your fantasy pub of the mind that we're going to shape over the course of uh, this evening, what sort of atmosphere has it got? What does it look like? What do you feel when you walk inside? It's going to be sort of, bon- how do I pronounce it? Is it Bonquette? Bonquette? Yes. Okay, bonquette heavy. I quite like the idea of sort of you know vel- a velvety kind of interior. Very very low lighting. 
I mean, really low. Maybe candles, actually. And no carpet because I don't like sticky carpet pubs. I don't really like the idea of there's too many spillages and, and I'm very clumsy. So I'm one of the people likely to be spilling. So are you a drink spiller? I'm just a very, I have very, very poor motor skills. So, I mean, I can't, I couldn't ever have worked as a, anybody as a waitress or anything like that. It just would have, it would have completely fallen apart. So I'm thinking a wooden floor, uh, you know, all very artisanal and with a sort of fire, but, you know, quite health and safety conscious. So I wouldn't want anyone to be at risk of taking a tumble into the fire or anything like that. So I would like it to be properly guarded. Properly guarded fire with perhaps a fire warden. Perhaps with somebody standing by. Like the we used to have a fire warden when we did cookery items on Woman's Hour. And so there'd be a guy standing by the oven with a fire extinguisher whenever we... Really? Yes. I mean, 100% true. So, I mean, perhaps he's probably looking for work so he could come and, and look after the fire at my pub. That would be good. So let's move on. In your low-lit, candle-filled, but very safe-fired pub with a wooden floor, what two draft items are you going to pick for your dream bar lineup? I did actually say alcohol-free lager is one of them. Superb. Um, but I do think this is a complex world and you need to tread very carefully here because there are some really horrible ones. Mm. And I think there's another one that isn't bad, the Moretti one. I don't think it's bad. And I'm drinking it tonight because I, you know, to my shame, had too much to drink last night and I, I don't feel terrific tonight. I think we're all feeling a little bit of that shame right now. Yes. Okay. So um, I would have, I think on draft, I would have Lucky Saint because I find that the most bearable so far in my alcohol-free lager journey. But then I also thought it would be really nice if Aid was on draft as well. And oh, I mean, nice. When I was a kid, and Aid was only drunk by invalids. It wasn't in any way associated with fitness or strength or being really butch. It was for you when you were, you'd copped a sickie off school and you'd be left upstairs. Your mum was reluctantly, or perhaps just didn't want to take a day off work to look after you, so left you with your nan or whatever. And I'd be upstairs with a bottle of Aid by my bed but with that wonderful crinkly golden thing around it. You, you do have to be at my age to remember the golden era of Aid. That's the problem with Aid in a way, is because Aid now just reminds me of being ill. Oh, does it? Okay. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I used to have it so often when I was ill. I don't mean this in the way it sounds, but Aid for me is very much the taste of diarrhoea. It's because of because it's it's what I was given when I had diarrhea as yes. a child. No, I know, I get that, and I will say I am a very cautious person, as I think I've made clear. Good name for the pub as well. <laughs> a cautious a person. No, no, a taste of diarrhea. Sorry. A taste of diarrhea. Well, yes, I um. There are two things I always have in the house. One is a frozen white loaf in the freezer. Such a great tip. That such a great tip. I am a you know woman of many you know years. And it's something I've passed on to my kids and everybody. You just have it because if you're ill, that will be the thing you can tolerate. Get it out of the freezer. Immediately replace, obviously, so you've always got it. And then the other thing is in the cupboard, two bottles of Aid, Because, you know, John's right. It will it will replenish your bodily fluids in the event of a digestive crisis. <laughs> Why are you laughing? No, it's just excellent broadcasting. I just that was superb. Yes, yeah. Well, <laughs> In your dream pub, we've got Lucasade on draft. I've never seen it before. But it's a very exciting prospect. Thank you. Oh, well, listen, if it goes somewhere, I want a cut. <laughs> hey, man, band is so good, man. Yeah, they're they're all right. Yeah, they're they're they're, they're rocking it up. Yeah, man. Solo is like speaking to my soul, man. Yeah, I can sort of feel it. I can feel it speaking to me, my soul. It's quite. It's taking quite a long time to say whatever it's trying to say. Yeah, it's so sweet, man. I mean, it's. It's. If anything, it's. It might be too long. Yeah, man. Life's too long, man. The solo is like life. Yeah. I, I think it is too long now. To, I might. I might go to the pub actually. Don't go to the pub. You're gonna miss the end of the solo. Can you just tell me what happens at the end? I'm off to the moon underwater. So we've got two items that could easily have been your bottled choices on draft. What are we going to have as your two bottles? 
or cans? Well, no, I'm allowed to pick anything, aren't I? Yes. Yes. I said, well, I've, I'm afraid my alcoholic drink, the one I really love, and I do love it, is champagne. I, I don't actually really like anything else. And that that makes me sound a right knob, which I get completely. But I've just got, to, in the spirit of this podcast, I just want to be completely honest. Oh, absolutely. And the late Cilla Black, who um, is not, she's not somebody I channel on a daily basis, but <laughs> I, I believe that she used to spend every evening just watching the box and drinking a bottle of champagne. And I think that's not a bad way to see out your last couple of decades. Do you have a specific champagne that you have a real fondness for, if you could sort of wave a magic wand and have it there before you? I think it was when I left Five Live, I got a bottle of um, proper, proper, you know, vintage champagne. I think, and I I should have remembered it, but it was Dom Perignon. I think it was a really, really, really quite a nice bottle of champagne, which I did drink. I think probably not at the time, but a couple of years later when I really needed it. (laughs) Um, And it was, it was, it was gorgeous because it just had these really tiny bubbles. And crucially, I didn't get a hangover, which it's one of those, you can really tell when you've had proper, proper champagne, I think. I was given another really nice bottle recently, which I stored away. And again, that was a leaving thing, a leaving present. And unfortunately, one of my kids drank it with some mates on a Friday night. Oh, my gosh. I know. You know what? I just had to laugh about it. (laughs) So I have often had a bit of um, anxiety about bottle choice in parents' homes, because I, I don't really know a huge amount about wine. So if you're around at a friend's house and they say, oh, grab a bottle of wine, you're terrified that you're sort of picking the antique rare vintage. Do you have a policy on access to your personal stash in the house? Well, put it this way, John. I've got a policy now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am not actually a very combustible individual. I'm quite calm. And, you know, she's 18. There's nothing, she wasn't doing anything illegal, heaven forbid. She's just a teenager who saw a bottle, thought, that's a pretty label. I've got some mates round. I'll stick it in the freezer for 10 minutes and then Bob's your uncle. My friend tucked into his parents' pastis at a party. And to try and, you know, um, cover up for that, he filled it up with water, which is obviously not a great idea because it just went chalky white immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Right. How is he? Oh, he's fine now. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I think he was probably very sick at the time. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah. I've had the Dom Perignon a couple of times you're talking about, and there is a different sensation when you're drinking it, because I'm not a huge champagne person. I find it sort of quite claggy and almost a bit too... um, You can taste the hangover coming, but with that Dom Perignon, it's so light, it's so smooth that you do feel... Oh, this is what people mean by champagne. <laughs> mm. It's like alcoholic leucosate, isn't it, really, in a way? Um, it is. It's kind of what it's like. I mean, I, listen, I've, I've had it possibly twice in my entire life, and I just think it is, it's intoxicating, but in all the right ways. And also, I think with champagne, when this is just me talking, I mean, after two glasses of champagne, I think I'm at my best. You know, I'm seriously good value. You know, I'm a laugh. Do you know... Bob Mortimer has a similar motto whereby he always has two cans of skull before going on TV. Because <laughs> he says that skull is about like 2.4% or something. And he thinks that two cans of weak lager bring out the best in him. And I do sometimes feel the same way about myself, certainly in company. I was going to say, you never drink before performing, do you, John? No, I've never drunk before going on stage just because I think... If I make a mistake, I want to know it's my fault. If I do well, I don't want to think, oh, that was the booze that did that. Also, I want to ideally want to drive home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, it's quite a lineup already. Alcohol-free lager, Lucky Saint, Aid, and Dom Perignon. And I'm just wondering what sort of clientele are going to be attracted to this very wide range of drinks. Well... I think basically invalids with expensive tastes. <laughs> yes, very well-heeled dowagers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can imagine. It caters for people who want to either, you know, have a night off the tiles 
or a night very, very much on the tiles with with champagne. It's champagne or Lucasade so far. And what would be your second bottle or can uh, alongside Dom Perignon? This is difficult, but I have fond memories of, I, uh, again, it might ring bells with people, but Bulgarian country wine. Now, this was something that was taken to every single teenage party I went to. And I think from memory, it was pound fifty. it retailed for back in the day. I'm talking mid-80s, maybe, yeah, early 80s. I went to my first party in about 81, something like that. So, yeah, it was absolutely awful. But it will, <laughs> it will just bring back memories. It really will. Is it, is, it a, is it a very sweet wine? Is it like Hungarian wine or is it? It was quite robust. Right. Uh, it was, um, uh, that's a, I think I always think that's a good adjective. Yeah, I don't know yeah. much about wine either, but <laughs> I think I think Bulgarian and robust probably go quite well together. It was just something we you just drank to ease your nerves and just to get completely plastered. You'd have a couple of glasses of that in a paper cup. And then if you were me, you'd just go straight onto the snowballs. You know, it was just brilliant. Yeah. If someone handed me or brought a Bulgarian wine to my house, I would probably think, oh, that must be very cool and fancy and trendy. But was it not, that wasn't the case at the time, was it sort of the cheapest wine? I think it was simply very, very cheap. And I think the Bulgarians had just simply flooded the Merseyside wine market with their, I was going to say not necessarily their finest produce. (laughs) Um, But we all bought it and it it was a reliable way of getting through something that you might have been dreading because I think you know I was actually quite nervous in those situations and and um yeah it helped it really helped I I'd, I'd love to taste it again just for just for old times sake they probably a mouthful of being off to be honest I wonder if they were sort of siphoning it directly from the wine lakes that you used to uh, hear about in mainland Europe <laughs> I wouldn't have been surprised yeah oh. What about the pubs in Liverpool do you have any fond memories or any favorite pubs uh, from growing up there um, well, I, I sort of grew up in the, one of the northern suburbs, a place called Crosby. There were a lot of very sort of serviceable pubs. <laughs> Nothing. My dad used to be a regular at a, at a very notorious Liverpool football club supporters pub called the Crow's Nest. That was a pub that was literally, it was all standing only. And it was, I don't think women ever went in there. It was just one of those, it was a proper boozer you know a boo i think it's it's still there and i think it largely still is like that and then there was a, a place called the liver hotel which is a kid i used to think was called the liver hotel which i think <laughs> actually would have been probably quite appropriate because i think a lot of um, quite uh, heavy drinkers may have ended up there on occasion my granddad he was always if, if we couldn't find granddad he was always at a pub called the enbut enbut which i think was something to do with canals and I don't know, that strange name, E-N-D-B-U-T-T, but I, it's just one of those pub names I remember from my childhood. My grandmother always trying to track granddad down and that was always the place where he'd be. And I used to drink in a pub called The Grapes in Crosby, which is... Oh, oh, not the not the grapes opposite the old cavern then. Not in Liverpool. The... No, we didn't go into Liverpool. Right, to drink. I see. Yeah. You didn't go there. Yeah, well, sure. well, it was five. Yeah. You know, it was five miles away, and it was. Um, I mean, if you wanted to go to, you know, to a club, it was a bit different. You might go, but but the pubs were all. We didn't need to travel very far. Quite near the countryside as well. You know, there's lots of quite nice countryside. I mean, people don't believe this. I get very defensive, but you know, Crosby is very near the sort of Lancashire countryside, the coast up to Southport, and there are some really nice country pubs around there. Well, we're at the halfway mark of uh, stocking Jane Garvey's perfect pub. It's bonquette heavy, guys. So if you like a bonquette, you're going to love it. (laughs) But we must uh, have a brief recess to improve our minds now as we head over to the lovely Robin for the Moon Underwater Pub Quiz. Okay, everybody. Pens out, eyes down. It's time for the quiz. Played for Zimbabwe, but he was born in South Africa. I know Alaska is bigger. That wasn't the question. Put your phone away. Right, Michael Jackson's Funky Monkey had been deducted five points. Thank you, John. Yes, welcome to the Moon Underwater Pub Quiz. Every week we ask a few questions, get the old brain box going. Jane, are you a fan of the pub quiz? Um, well, yeah, I'm always keen to have a go. Nice, good. We'll see how you get on with this. There, are no, no, no prizes. No, you know, it's uh, it's all just for fun. Uh, so this uh, week's pub quiz is about well, it's about it's a geography round. It's a geography round. It's about counties, UK counties, and postcodes. Oh, 
God. Well, this is uh, we're all having. Is it going to be more fun than it sounds? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, don't you worry. We'll ask the questions now, and we'll have the answers after a little interlude for the listeners. So don't feel any pressure to know your postcodes. No pressure. No pressure whatsoever. So, question one is: the Cotswolds is spread over five English counties. Can you name them? Five English counties. It's big, isn't it, the Cotswolds? But have have a think. Question two. Which city in the UK has the postcode area of FY? So you think Bristol's got BS. What has FY? It's, a, it's quite a tricky one. I'll give you that as a clue. Okay, question three. This is so boring. You were right, Jane. I'm so sorry. How long was the county of Avon an active county? I was only talking about that today uh, to someone. Um, really? I, I only found that this out today. How long, question three, how long was the county of Avon an active county? As in, uh, you know, when was it, when did it become a county and when did it stop being a county? And that was the most boring quiz I've ever done on the Moon Underwater, but, you know. Is that the end of the quiz? Yeah, there's only three questions. Robin, I absolutely adored that quiz. It was truly boring in the way that all great quizzes are. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. And suffice to say that Avon does still exist in some forms, but not as uh, a county. Obviously, the Avon and Somerset Police Force. Of course. Well, and it still sometimes appears as a drop-down when you're entering in addresses and things. Which is weird. But folks, we will leave you on those tenter hooks and you will now hear some uh, incidental music composed by the lovely Robin Allender or perhaps even an advert composed by uh, a marketing agency, depending <laughs> on what happens. Uh, if you would like to remove the adverts from the Moon Underwater and gain many other perks, head over to patreon.com forward slash moonunderpod. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back, everyone. We have been rent asunder by these tenterhooks, Robin. These postcode tenterhooks. Mm, postcodes and counties. Postcodes and counties, P's and C's. Mind your P's and C's. Uh, we'll now have the results of the Moon Underwater quiz. Thank you, John. Yeah, so this one, which was a quiz which was posed to me by my friend Alex. The question was posed to me by my friend Alex. The Cotswolds is spread over five English counties. Can you name them? How did you guys get on? Well, I've got five counties. I'm not certain of one of them. Go on. Let's. Uh, shall we hear it? Gloucestershire. Yes. Worcestershire. Yes. Oxfordshire. Yes. Warwickshire. Yes. Okay, and Northamptonshire. No. Very <gasps> good, though. Four out of five. That's superb. I only got two of those. Really? What were yours, John? Uh, well, I didn't. I, I didn't even manage five. I was so poor on this. Okay. But my other one was Herefordshire. <laughs> no, the other one was Wiltshire. Oh, so three, really? three W's, three W's. Goes quite far up the Cotswolds. Well done for getting Warwickshire. Garvey absolutely have... storming ahead with the really uh, the smashed course. it. Excellent. Yeah, I think you, you you hide your bushel under a under a. Light. Question two. I've been looking for that bushel for bloody ages. Yeah. Question two. 
Which city has the postcode area of FY? Now, very. I think this might be one you either know or you don't. Oh, I, I thought this was exceptionally hard. Do you, do you know this one, Jane? I've guessed Carlisle. It's a good guess. John? I've no idea. It's a good guess because it is a guess... Well, it's kind of in the right ballpark, and it's not based on the kind of letters in the postcode, as you expect. It's Blackpool. Blackpool has the postcode FY because of the coastal area in Western Lancashire known as the Fylde, F-Y-L-D-E. So there we go. So that's FY. That's one that will definitely come up in pub quizzes, I should think. So the last question was... In pub quizzes about postcodes. It's a good round. (laughs) It is a good round. round. I've enjoyed this. Question three was, how long was the county of Avon active... So, you, you know, have a guess in years, or I'll give you five either way. I mean, I've said four years. God knows why. Four years? It's It was longer than that. I've said 24 years. <laughs> Johnny boy, it was 22. Ooh. Well done. Well, that spanned my early years. I was born in Avon, and then it left me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Avon, 1974 to 1996. It's years, and now, it's of course, it's the city of Bristol, as it was before. I think. But, you know, great round. Well done if you've got those at home. Well done, everyone. And thank you to Robin for a superb pub quiz that we've has unmasked Jane Garvey as a postcode and counties expert. Yeah. Well, to lift our spirits after that wonderful pub quiz, we now move on to the optics in Jane Garvey's dream pub. It's the spirit slash liqueurs round. Are you a spirit drinker, Jane? Uh, well, look, I have been. I mean, I like like everybody, I had a, a truly shocking Perno experience. So, no, I don't drink spirits now, not really. I think if I was going to, I don't mind a gin and tonic occasionally, but, you know, aniseed, I've never been near since. What's that drink they drink in bottom? Perno Uzo, isn't it? They drink yes. mixed Perno Perno Uzo yeah. marmalade and salt. <laughs> yeah, well, God. <laughs> so is gin going to be one of your choices? Yes, because I think I live in West London and there's a relatively local producer of gin, Sipsmith. They're around here. Oh, nice. Yeah. And yeah, so a nice gin. It is a really lovely drink. I just find I probably just drink it too quickly and you know, all ends in tears and heartache. But um, it does depress you, gin. There's just no point in pretending otherwise, really. I think it definitely does. I wonder if sometimes it's the gin as a sort of summer afternoon one-off drink, I think probably is okay. But it's when it's your sort of go-to in the evening, I think it sort of soaks up the darkness of the of the night. It has something about the night of it. Anne Widdicombe once said that about Michael Howard. Yes, I know. Put yeah. Michael Howard and Widdicombe <laughs> in a bottle of gin in the room and... Um... <laughs> You'd be very, very depressed. You, uh, you might well be, yes. <laughs> but nevertheless, I can make a case for a good... And I've always been intrigued by the beverage of choice of the late Queen Mother, which I understood. I was thinking about this today, and I looked it up, and she used to have, as an aperitif every day, a gin and jubonnet. And that... I've never had it, but, I mean, if it was good enough for her, and she, you know, she lived to be well over 100, didn't she? You've got to ask, how bad could it be? I remember ordering Dubonnet once in the college bar because it was in a Lou Reed song from the Berlin album. He said, in Berlin, by the wall, you were five foot ten inches tall. It was very nice. We drank Dubonnet on ice. And I remember thinking, oh, this is going to be the best thing I've ever tasted because it's in a Lou Reed song. And then I tasted it and it was just like, tasted a bit like earwax. (laughs) But then a lot of those very... It's, I'm surprised they had it in the college bar. <laughs> I am too. What kind of college was this? Uh, St Anne's. Me and Rob went to the same college. Yeah, I don't think it got a lot of use. I think it had probably been there for 20 years. So are you picking Dubonnet and gin so that you can create the Queen Mother's favourite aperitif? How did you pronounce it? I pronounce it like Lou Reed pronounces it, which is Dubonnet. Because uh, in, in Liverpool, it was Dubonnet. I'm telling you that for nothing. Yeah, um, you, you're probably so, right. <laughs> no, I don't think I am. I think you're, I've just realised that it's probably from a French of the bonnet. What would it, what would it be? Do you, uh, what, the, <laughs> I don't know. What? I'm going to look it up in my mind. Yes. So thinking about how much good it did the Queen Mother. Yes, I'm going for that. 
It's a very nice bottle. It looks like something from a Toulouse-Lautrec kind of painting that would be in the background somewhere there, you know. In French, it's du bonnet. In English, it's du bonnet. I'll be honest with you, my um, IPA pronunciation uh, transcriptions are not really what they were, the International Phonetic Alphabet. I thought you were talking about India Pale Ale. No. It's a, a sweet, <laughs> aromatised, wine-based aperitif, a blend of fortified wine, herbs and spices, including a small amount of quinine. So no wonder it goes well with gin. Apparently the Queen Mother used to refer to her first drink of the day as the witching hour. And I think it was three o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon, she would say it's the witching hour and have her first gin. And that, I do like that, I have to say. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. Here at the Moon Underwater, we also have a library and every week we add a publi tome to it for our patrons to enjoy when they come to visit. So, Robin, what what are we adding to the Moon Underwater Library this week? Oh, thanks, John. So this week on the pub library, I've just finished reading, actually listening to, because I listened to the audiobook, uh, Richard Thompson's autobiography, Beeswing. So Richard Thompson was the guitarist in Fairport Convention. And he's got a really lovely style because he's it's very down to earth even though his experiences were completely extraordinary and I what I really liked about it and the reason I'm including this is because he writes so well about the 60s and a little bit of that kind of era which is obviously a lot later that Jane's describing where the BBC for example maybe was a little bit more free and easy in terms of going out and getting getting the odd cannon or pint in when he's talking about kind of when they first started gigging in London uh, I think it's such a lovely picture of the time and place. And it's, it's a really nice kind of encapsulation of maybe what London was like in the 60s. So he's talking about how some of his earliest gigs were in Covent Garden. And at the time, the licensing hours were different because of all the market stalls. So the pubs could be open all night. That's That sounds great. <laughs> but in a kind of, not in a kind of going out and getting slashed way, but in a kind of functional way, which is kind of what's attractive about it, I think. This kind of idea of a subterranean normality, you know what I mean? Like, that's going on in the middle of the night. So this is from uh, Beeswing. Some of our earliest shows in central London were at the Electric Garden, or Middle Earth as it was later known. It was essentially a large basement in Covent Garden, which at that point was the main fruit and vegetable market in London. If you were one of the smaller bands on the lineup, it was quite possible that you would find yourself playing one set at 9pm and another at 5am. In the meantime, you could either go home or grab six hours sleep or stay to watch the other bands who might include Elmer Gantry's Velvet Opera, Mighty Baby, Graham Bond or Tyrannosaurus Rex. The gaps between performances at the club inspired a long-running joke. What's the biggest break of your career? Eight hours between sets at Middle Earth. It held a couple of hundred people and three stages were squeezed into the space. Outside the club, there was always a strange meeting of cultures. There would be hippies dressed as deranged peacocks, and among them there would also be the market workers in their flat caps and leather aprons. The Royal Opera House was just around the corner, and in those days audiences were dressed to the nines with the men in black tie and women in evening gowns. There was a famous sausage sandwich stall in one corner of the market square, and there at around 11pm the three cultures would collide. It was always friendly, with the normal barriers of age and class for some reason not applying. I just love that because it's such a great snapshot of London in the 60s, but also kind of what makes London great now in terms of that huge diversity of people, kind of all wanting the same sausage. <laughs> you know, that's it's just a lovely story, I think. Yeah, and also I think one of the sort of sad things about modern London becoming so expensive is you do get less and less of those mixes of cultures and professions as well because you don't have those traditional sort of quarters for different industries. It's basically every piece of property here is unaffordable to everyone apart from a certain strata of society. Exactly, yeah. So that's, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's sad in a way that that kind of London doesn't exist anymore, you know, but it's got a great snapshot. Is that a new book or is that an old one? Yeah, that came out, um, I think it came out earlier this year. But the audiobook is read by Richard Thompson himself. And it's, it's really good. He's got a great voice for reading it. 
And they, they also, Fairport actually lived in a pub. Did they? For one period, in Bishop Stortford. Yeah, they lived in a pub called The Angel, which was disused, and they used to rehearse there, yeah. So it's a, it's a great book. Well, thank you, Robin, for that wonderful addition to the Moon Underwater Pub Library, Bees Wing by Richard Thompson. Uh, but we don't just have a library here, Jane. We also have a jukebox, and every single guest that enters the Moon Underwater is able to leave what they believe to be an ideal pub jukebox album. So what would you like to have on in the background, and at what volume, as you are enjoying a gin and Dubonnet, or perhaps even a gin and Lucasade? <laughs> Yes. Um, okay, I've thought about this. Um, the album that I keep returning to and have played since I was in my teens is Orange Juice and Rip It Up. Oh, nice. Great mm, so choice. So I love that and it continues to bring me joy and has, which when you think about it is amazing, isn't it? Because it's probably, it must have been an album from the, I think it's 81 or 82, possibly 83. And I still love it. So that one, I mean, actually, quite. I'd like to put that quite loud. That would be all right with me. Don't you worry. We can just add quite loud into the settings of the jukebox. There's a brilliant book by Simon Reynolds about punk and post-punk called Rip It Up, named after the Orange Juice song and album, uh, which is definitely worth a read. But yeah, brilliant. Edwin Collins. I don't actually own that album, much to my shame, so I'm going to invest in that. But I was lucky enough to see Edwin Collins when he opened for Pulp in their tour when I saw them in 1996. The first gig I ever went to was Pulp at the NEC. So actually, the first musician I ever saw live on stage was Edwin Collins. Oh, wow. That's quite spooky, isn't it? Superb addition to the Moon Underwater jukebox. And we have one choice remaining for you, Jane. It is your wild card. Now, some might argue that Lucasade on draft and Dubonnet are pretty wild card-esque in their <laughs> selection. So I'm delighted to hear what you're choosing for your, your final drink choice. It can be absolutely anything. Again, back to the spirit of reclaiming my youth, I've gone for Blue Nun here. Nice. Um, oh, lovely. Uh, just, just a bottle of Blue Nun, nicely chilled, or frankly just tepid, would bring a lot of memories back. Can you still get Blue Nun? Yes, you can. And Black Tower. Oh, you can? Yeah. Well, don't rush. <laughs> yeah, okay, no. <laughs> I've written Black Tower down as well, but in the end I went for Blue Nun, just with the name makes me laugh. And I can see the, la- I can see the label. Yep, it's still available, is it? Okay, I'll, well, I'll get, a, get a bottle tomorrow. It's got something, it brings with it that time in sort of England, especially where the food was very bad, and people were just beginning to appreciate foreign tastes. It's got an Abigail's Party sort of a vibe, hasn't it, Blue Nun? Yeah. <laughs> like they still sell that Mateus Rosé. Yes. Well, that was the other thing you'd always have on the table. Mateus Rosé, Black Tower, Blue Nun. That was, our, that was I can see, our Christmas dinner with those three bottles right in the middle of the table. Because, Rob, you remember that book Kingsley Amis on drink? He's got sort of very pompous views about wine from that period of English sort of getting into wine that actually now seem quite thick. Yeah, well, he would have seen it as being very nouveau riche kind of thing, I suppose, wouldn't he? But uh, I have never had a Blue Nun, though. Have you had it, John? Yeah, it's very, very drinkable. Is it? I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of gone. You could drink a pint of it, I think. (laughs) Right. Is it very weak? It's a very quaffable Riesling. Because you remember, like, it's always a big revelation when you discover that Lambrini isn't actually wine, and it's actually Perry, isn't it? Yes. It's like cider, uh, isn't it? Yeah, it's sort yeah. of sparkling Perry. Yeah. I mean, Blue Nun is a, a genuine German wine brand. It just happens to... Well, it has just has a reputation, especially since the Alan Partridge sketch, where it just downs half a bottle of Blue Nun. It's, what can you do? If you, It's the same as Buckfast, isn't it? You know, Buckfast has been... <laughs> As they say, brewed by monks, drunk by punks. You know, it's uh, it's become something else, and despite it's probably quite noble kind of beginnings or something. You know? I think. I mean, I, I genuinely know nothing about wine, and I don't really drink it. I mean, I, do, I, I it's not. I don't really have any, any in the house, or you know, I just so don't come around here looking for wine because you won't get any. <laughs> 
Well, Robin, I've got a fact about Blue Nun that will interest you. On the Beatles song, Long, 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 off the White Album... Yeah, I knew this was a wine bottle. I did not know it was Blue Nun. Rattling noises by a bottle of Blue Nun are heard as a result of the bottles resting on top of a Leslie speaker, which began to vibrate when Paul McCartney played a certain note on the Hammond organ. Yeah, that's a great fact. And that's my favourite Beatles song. Is it really? Yeah. Ah, oh. uh, Robin also has a Beatles podcast, I should point out, <laughs> called Your yeah. Own Personal Beatles, which is yeah. an exceptional podcast. Well done. Well Thank done. You. Thank you. And you can now claim that fact as your own, Rob, yeah. at the start of the next well, episode. Well, as I said, I did always know that was a wine bottle, but I had no idea it was Blue Nun, but great. You're barred. So we've now completed the lineup in Jane Garvey's Dream Pub. We have Low Lights. We have a fire warden. There's no carpet. There's a wooden floor and candles. So it really does need a fire warden. Um, (laughs) It's heavy with velvet bonquettes. And you're not going to get too drunk if you're drinking off draft because you have alcohol-free lager, Lucky Saint and Lucasade. However, move over to the bottles dispensary and you are in for a treat with robust Bulgarian country wine and Dom Perignon which you can drink like a queen as you mix your Sipsmith gin and Dubonnet. You'll be listening to Orange Juice, Rip It Up, and perhaps quaffing the odd half-bottle of Blue Nun. But what one thing will you not be coming across in this pub? Jane, what are you going to ban or bar from your dream pub? A television. Very good. I remember once doing some, I don't know, some Five Live outside broadcast in a pub. You know when Five Live kind of, I'm sure perhaps you've done this actually, sort of imposes itself on an establishment that doesn't really want it there, but they just want to do an outside broadcast. So I was one of the pioneers of that kind of thing. And I remember one pub we went to, I think it was in Wales actually, and they were just watching Columbo and they just did not want us in there at all. And, and it, was, it was just extremely irritating. I remember thinking then. And also, don't, you know, don't if you want to watch the telly, watch the telly. Stay at home. You don't need to go to the buddy pub. Sorry, I sounded quite strident there. I do really believe this. And also, yeah. it, even if you're not watching the telly, it's impossible to not watch a telly if there's a telly. Exactly. Yeah. I think it, do you know what it reminds me of? It, it's like a nightmarish vision of, of my future in an old folks' home where there's a telly on, but I don't want it on. And it's on a channel I'd never watch. You know, you know what I mean? I just can't, I can't bear it. And it's just sort of being piped yes. in and you can't reach it with your stick. Yes. Yeah, all of that. Oh, Lord. Yeah, too much. It's cheered everyone up, hasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. There won't be a screen in sight. Hurry up, please. It's time. So what would you call this pub? Well, I have settled on the Harpy's Rest. Ooh, tell me more. I just think, you know, it's it's basically done done nagging, done, you know, I've I've done my time. I just want to just stew gently in my own juice on a bonquette, <laughs> drinking Dom Perignon or possibly Lucasade with the fire warden in close attendance. So you're reclaiming the word harpy. I am. Yeah. (laughs) Do you sort of see in this pub the life of a queen mother? Just sort of that slight element of of faded glory, but glory nonetheless. Just taking life at its own pace. An excellent way of putting it, John. That would be me. Yeah. (laughs) Possibly possibly without the large hats. But I'm around about the same same height as Her Late Majesty. So that would be... um, Perhaps she was a little heavier than me, I'm going to say that. But yeah, yeah, that sounds a very nice way to wind down and a good place to be. Oh, well, we thank you so much for joining us and giving us your time in creating the Harpy's Rest. What a place it would be to just sort of mm. reflect on life whilst getting really quite sozzled, but with Lucasade <laughs> if things got too, too extreme. Yeah, it's kind of got built-in hangover cure, hasn't it? That's great. Yes. Lucasade on tap. Well, uh, Jane, we we wish you safe return to the other realm, uh, but take with you the Harpy's Rest under your arm for whenever you need it the most. And Jane, as you leave us, what song from Orange Juice's album Rip It Up would you like to play you out? Uh, Flesh of My Flesh. Ooh, Flesh of My Flesh from Orange Juice will begin now as Jane exits the moon underwater and goes on her merry way. We thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for having me.
Well, we thank Jane Garvey so much uh, for bringing her wonderful talents and her uh, something about her voice is just so perfectly calming and wonderful. Yeah, it is. It um, is. Yeah, which is why she does the job she does, um, and uh, what a super job she does do. Do check out her podcast as well, which I've been on. It's fortunately with Fee and Jane, which you can get uh, on BBC Sounds or wherever you get your podcasts. It's such a delightful listen. Um, and we wish Jane all the best as she heads away now into the vortices uh, that surround the moon underwater. But next week, we'll be rolling out the infinite carpet for Ian Ryan. Now, you may not know Ian Ryan by his Earth name, but his other realm name you w- may recognise if you are a fan of pub-based uh, social media content because he is also known as Shit London Guinness. And? And Beautiful Pints. Yes. So he's covering both sides of the coin there, and we look forward to examining that coin a little bit closer next week. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.